City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. You're here on City Limits and uh, I am Meg Kimmer and Zeb Peek is here with me. Um, we're not in the studio, unfortunately, because we're still recording from home um, and doing our best to just bring the show to you every week. And unfortunately, we're not joined by Kevin today, but um, we do have a wonderful guest. We'll be joined by Kath Larkin from Rail Trains, Trams, Bus. Zeb, do you know what the union is called? Not to put you on the spot. I think it's the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, but I could be wrong. Rail, Tram and Bus Union. Yes, that sounds, that sounds good. Let's run with that. And so we'll be talking about some of the broader issues around privatisation of our public transport network. And we'll also be getting a bit of information about the work that the union has done to support transport workers um, who've obviously been heavily affected by the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown. Um, but does anyone have a cup of tea to pour? Because I do not. Karina looks like she has the ability. (laughs) (laughs) Big cup of tea. Oh, lovely. So refreshing. And Zeb, so, I mean, you guys had a great show last week. You've just come in into the show and just hit the ground running <laughs> and this week you've been doing a bit of research and unfortunately none of us here are avid Herald Sun readers in the way that Kevin is but we have pulled together a few interesting articles that we think our listeners might might enjoy hearing about. Was there anything you wanted to start with Zeb? Yeah there were we did find a few interesting articles. There was one about apparently there's going to be just following on from the housing episode that we had last week, um, there's also an announcement for a $797 million plan towards energy efficiency in homes in Victoria. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's focusing on existing homes and renters and low-income households and trying to retrofit um, better energy efficiency into those homes. So that sounded quite promising, I thought. Yes. It's, yeah, it's a step up from just like new places having a great energy efficiency rating, but yeah. then there being just loads and loads of old homes that are like falling apart and don't have any insulation. Yeah, absolutely. And this is just a Victorian endeavour at the moment, I understand, but it would be good if it could become something that is happening around Australia because like you say lots of new houses have energy efficiency targets that they have to meet but in most of Australia it's becoming more and more common that people rent and maybe rent for their whole lives Uh, so it's you do then have to deal with the fact that the property owner doesn't have much of an incentive necessarily to fix up their property to become more energy efficient. But if we don't do that, we're not going to meet certain targets that we really need to meet. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
I suppose the only the only worry that I have is that some homes would probably just like they're so far gone that it would be difficult to add any like one particular yeah. aspect to them that would actually help them to be more efficient. Totally. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm sure like for, for me, lots of houses in Melbourne that I've lived in have been super energy inefficient mm-hmm. just in the way that they're built because they're old houses and they're really hot in the summer and they're really cold in the winter and just chucking a heater or air con in there or something is not going to change that yeah absolutely like you could double glaze the windows but that yeah. wouldn't necessarily mean that the insulation for the rest of the house would work and so mm. it'll be interesting to see how that turns out yeah. And a lot of, well, I think, I'm sure, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would be interested to see how many properties people are owning that they're just sitting on until they can sell at a later date and that the properties will probably be demolished because the land values are so high in Melbourne. It's more likely that someone would buy a block of land to develop on it rather than to spend $2 million on an old weatherboard cottage in Brunswick from the 1930s. So it's going to be interesting to see if there's any way to actually encourage property owners to invest in a property when they may not have any intention of actually maintaining that property into the future. Yeah. 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 Well, another acute announcement that I saw that came out, well, I, I thought it was cute was that um, researchers at the university of Sydney and Taronga conservation society have launched this app called big city birds and it's to help, scientists with data collection on um, lots of common bird species that we find in the cities so if you live in a city you can like help with citizen science and um, take records of all basically all of the like bin chickens that you see (laughs) which I just thought was amazing (laughs) that's a are you from Queensland that's kind of a Queensland thing I think I remember the ibis is being called that when I lived in Brisbane oh we had a we had a thing back in one of my other um, households where we used to go dumpster diving, but we would call it bin chickening. And um, <laughs> the bin chicken was sort of that like emblem of our household. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a really cool thing to get involved in. And and it's, it's an intelligent way for uh, a team to gather data on, on what birds are doing because otherwise it would be very difficult to pull together that amount of, of information. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's looking into um, how some of those more common birds in the cities are adapting and why they're, um, mm. they're flourishing and managing to sort of live among humans. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you find any other news stories that you wanted to talk about? I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> 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 you're too good Zeb you've you've got like quite a few I thought it was interesting looking at the Northern Territory um, government moves to allow uh, expansion to the mine up there uh, that one that you sent through oh, was yeah. interesting that yeah. was not great news no so basically that's talking about Glencore's MacArthur River zinc mine um, and the NT government has approved it even though I think the government's own sacred sites authority hasn't um, 
given the go-ahead and has actually mm. advised against it. So, yeah, mm. disappointing news. Yeah, indeed, especially after what ha- happened in, in Western Australia. And, ag- again, also the other news was that the Jabbarong legal case has is in court again after the destruction of the directions tree, which I'm sure has been covered quite widely on 3CR. Uh, Jabbarong traditional owner Marjorie Thorpe is, is in the su- Supreme Court being represented by uh, Rob Merkel, QC, saying that the Eastern Meyer Aboriginal Corporation received financial benefits from the state when it agreed to the road upgrade. So right. all of this taken together, especially as we have said before on 3CR, when the uh, state government is, is making efforts to try to negotiate a treaty with the Aboriginal nations, of the state that we call Victoria, it's hugely disappointing. And, and again, this is, this is mentioned in the article about the Western Australian mine expansion, that the process of, of checking whether a site is of Aboriginal heritage significance is designed to stop the kind of exploitation and destruction of Aboriginal culture and uh, community that has been previously caused by colonialism and we can just see again and again that even with these structures in place and these bodies in place that still these destructions keep on happening so very disappointing yeah absolutely it seems like you know these processes are just being used to say yes we did this Mm. we we got approval we got consent and now Great, let's go ahead with the plan that we had all along and we just needed to do that bit of paperwork. Like it really doesn't seem like anyone is actually listening to what traditional owners are saying. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see what happens in, in, in the case of the, the Jabwaran court case. So yeah, let's hope that some good news comes out of it. Yeah, indeed. The last news item that I found I just thought was was quite interesting was that TPG has launched a carbon-neutral mobile brand powered by renewables. So, of course, these initiatives are always sort of a good thing, but also you wonder, like, how, how actually carbon-neutral these things are. Mm. But I still thought that it was an interesting announcement. So... An article in Renew Economy is talking about launching a new low-cost mobile service that the company is pitching as one of the most environmentally friendly. It's called Felix, and the company was able to maintain a commitment to operate on a carbon-neutral basis and purchasing of all of its electricity used from renewable energy sources. So it does look like a a promising mobile brand. Mm. I guess we'll have to wait and see what that actually means, but... Yeah, I just thought that that was an interesting news item that popped up. It is interesting. I think a lot of companies are now, I think it's sort of like in the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of understanding from bigger companies that they have to at least look like they are taking action on their effects upon climate change. Um, and the amount that they actually do is variable. But I think something's changed more recent years and a lot of major organisations 
like major companies that have shareholders are looking at the fact that if they keep on ignoring the impact of climate change on their businesses, like, for example, energy companies that really can't continue to maintain the uh, business as usual way that they've done business because the markets just aren't there for the energy sources that they want to distribute and they don't have social license and they're increasingly on the nose. Yeah. It's, I think now they're saying like, because the, the bottom line for, 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 for companies is always the shareholder and shareholders are perhaps putting more pressure in, on companies and we're seeing this effect. I feel a little bit cynical about it. I think it's okay for me to say that here on City Limits. I can almost hear Kevin laughing. Oh, a little bit cynical? <laughs> you wouldn't. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the motivation, I think, is still to make profit. Absolutely, yeah. But even so, it's good. If, if governments won't take the lead, unfortunately, corporations will. And we've seen that time and time again that they, they operate under their own sort of set of rules in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I guess you just got to take what we're getting, Yeah, <laughs> but also always like push for more and push yeah. for government action. And yeah. Indeed. Yeah. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Cause it does, mm-hmm. it does often result in the changes that, that we would like to see, but it's not really for the right reason. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And carbon offsetting is a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? Um, Zab, because it's like, oh, you're buying some trees planted somewhere. What, what is it exactly? And we don't often look into that. Yeah, it's really, um, I think it's really variable, like how Mm. one measures carbon offsets. And of course, carbon offsets don't solve climate change on their own by any means. Mm. You know, you can't just plant some more trees. You do actually also have to stop emitting uh, <laughs> CO2 at some point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny, like, businesses that, not that this one necessarily is, but definitely other businesses are major carbon emitters and then they're like, oh, no, we're offsetting it, you know, like because, like, forestry organisations, for example, they're like, well, we're planting all these trees, but that's not, they're not, sort of reckoning with the fact that they're cutting down all these other trees. Yeah. Yeah, and just even on that, like the difference between young a young forest mm-hmm. and the amount of CO2 that that sucks up compared mm-hmm. to like a well-established um, older forest is, is mm-hmm. quite substantial as well apparently. So, mm-hmm. I've heard yeah, that. it doesn't really – it's not as simple as that. Exactly. I think the whole car- – the I just carbon offsets have become such a buzzword and you can see it thrown into all kinds of places and, and I very rarely see the details of the nitty-gritty of what that actually means and it might just mean that a proportion of a company's profit – is sent to a business that is making a, a business out of selling carbon offsets, selling mm. some kind of uh, something that's shown to provide some positive impact on carbon emissions. So it's a little bit of a tricky one, I think. Yeah. So Meg, you weren't here last week, but we were talking about the big public housing announcement Yes. Uh, except that it wasn't a big public housing announcement. It was a big social housing announcement. Yes. And I learned the difference between public housing uh-huh. and community housing last week. So, yeah, apparently it isn't 
exactly as great as it sounds at first glance. Um, mm. But did you want to? Did you want to have a quick chat about that? Yeah, I was very excited to see that there was a big announcement on housing and affordable housing. It obviously is disappointing that it's not it's not an investment in public housing on public land managed by government. Mm-hmm. And um, it is it is really very exciting that there is that acknowledgement because the COVID situation has shown that homelessness can be solved. It's not an unsolvable problem like it's treated. It's not this, you know, head scratching, what can we do? Let's put more money into services for people and work out why they can't seem to get their stuff together to rent a house. I think it's it's it doesn't the the media and stuff around this announcement doesn't acknowledge the fact that um, housing prices are hugely hugely unaffordable for not just the most the people who are most financially vulnerable but massive proportions of the population um, don't have access to affordable, secure housing the way that they should have access to it in because of the failings of the private market. So I think partly probably this has been pushed. I suspect this has come about because, because of the fact that people have been housed during this crisis. Mm. And we're, we're coming up to the crunch time of when a lot of changes are going to happen. The moratorium on evictions ends at the end of March next year. And changes to the Residential Tenancy Act are on the way to being put into place next year as well. They've been delayed. They were meant to come into place this year, earlier this year. So we're seeing more recognition on the fact that Lots of the social problems that we have are are a result of or are impacted by the dysfunctional private market that we have, which is hugely unaffordable for a vast majority of Australians. Um, so I, I wonder, yeah, whether the COVID situation has actually, you know, the end of the end of the restrictions and the changes that are happening. Are they going to put everybody that they had housed in hotels? back on the street that's a really rough thing to do so I think they might have their hand might have been forced there to to make some changes yeah I think that's really good insight I I wouldn't be surprised if that was um, a big chunk of the reasoning behind it yeah and I'm sure um, Howard and and uh, Shane as well probably would have touched on this last week Um, the the social housing providers are also have been pushing very heavily for this and I think lobbying the government to put themselves in the position to receive the funding to to build maintain and sort of um, service those properties with with social services and social support and mental and emotional support yep yep When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests 
slow down the path of fire. And this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. For those who have just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR. And we're coming up to near the halfway point of the show and we will be joined by Kath Larkin soon from the RTBU, Rail, Tram and Bus Union. And we'll be talking about some of the issues that have been coming up for them with COVID. Okay, so we might take a short break. Uh, You're listening to City Limits and we're going to go to a song by ModCon. We'll be back after that break with our guest.
Okay, welcome back to City Limits. You've been listening to a song, Do It Right, Margot, by ModCon. And now we've got Kath Larkin on the line. Kath is from the RTBU, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, here to talk about um, a lot of issues um, with transport and with, particularly with privatisation, as well as talking about safety in the pandemic and the pandemic leave slash job security. So welcome, Kath. Um, how are you going? Hi, yeah, thanks. Really great to be here. Mm. Yeah, great to have you in the show. Kath, can we start with like talking about the issues that, that workers have experienced during the pandemic and then we can get on to the privatisation stuff later um, because I, I, I'm really interested. You know, on City Limits, we do a regular show about transport and uh, it's great to be able to have you here on this special show so we can really dive deeply into this question. I've been thinking about the workers on, on, on all of our public transport and wondering how they're coping uh, with the changes, especially with the, the downturns in, in, in people using services and also about how they're keeping themselves safe in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think for us, like the, the big first question when the pandemic hit was about um, safety. That was yeah. the kind of biggest issue. Mm. Um, so we're fortunate enough that the bulk of us are in secure employment. So less people traveling hasn't impacted um our like our, our shifts our ability to come to work right. um so that's been well on the one hand positive on the other hand you'd think if it's not as necessary for as many of us to be there perhaps they could have found a way mm. to you know mm. keep people employed and with money to live without having to put themselves unnecessarily at risk mm. yeah um, but I think, yeah, like the, the the biggest things was that they just didn't want to provide any basic PP. I mean, the first thing, the first fight we had at my workplace at Flinders Street wasn't even about PPE. It was about running water. Uh, so we had, you know, like problems with the, the staff meal room and bathrooms. There was like, you know, a, a plumbing issue, which sure happens. But that's like an emergency issue in normal times, yeah. let alone yeah. in the middle of a pandemic, expecting people to eat their lunch somewhere where they couldn't wash their hands. Mm. Um, the, the managers just kept kind of pushing it off. It's not that important. You know, it'll get fixed in a few weeks. And it's like, this is not acceptable. And so, you know, workers, that was kind of the first fight we had. You know, people uh, kicked up a fuss, um, demanded, uh, you know, threatened put a pin uh, a provisional improvement notice on it to try to you know use as limited as they are to try to use some of those health and safety regulations uh, to protect ourselves and it was that um, and going to the union that you know that the union went to the government and that was what kind of tri triggered them to say okay well maybe we'll fix this and then these repairs that they'd said would take weeks you know got done overnight in response to our mm. activity. Yeah, and you've seen we've seen the government have to get involved on several fronts, and most notoriously, um, in regards to the cleaning and the debacle mm. of the um, the relationships there between um, the private 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 cleaning company and um, yep. yeah. Any comment on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the cleaning was a huge issue, and like from the very beginning, we were arguing that there needed to be regular cleaning of the trains of stations of you know all kind of you know public transport surfaces and there was a huge amount of pushback um, on that in fact workers were disciplined 
um, you know, had all sorts of threats leveled against them by management when they tried to uh, kick up about this. And then eventually um, the government did decide, okay, it's a bad look, we will uh, invest some money um, in cleaning. And so then they put huge amounts of money um, into additional cleaning. But of course, with an outsourced, privatised cleaning company, um, we were always saying, and many of our passengers were saying, these trains do not look like they're cleaned. It does not look like this has been adequately cleaned. So concerning. Yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> as, as back then was when uh, we understood and believed that surface transmission was this you know, big threat. Yeah. We now know that that's not the most significant or most likely way of transmitting the virus, but back then it was the thing that we were all really worried about. Yeah. Mm. And, of course, it's come out that two senior managers in both Metro and V-Line uh, were getting kickbacks from um, the, the TransClean, the cleaning company, mm. um, to basically cover their tracks to hide what they were doing um, and that they themselves were making huge amounts, you know, tens of thousands of dollars yeah. out of this totally filthy scheme. And it's just like it's a pretty stark difference between... <laughs> Our workers viewed their safety um, and the safety of the public and then managers and these private companies who just see this as a way uh, to earn a buck. Indeed. Well said. Yeah, that's awful. And I suppose that just is a testament to all of the problems that come along with privatisation, of which I'm sure there are many more that you would like to <laughs> talk about. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I do love talking about how awful privatisation is. You're in, the right, Metro... you're in the right place, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. good. The first, like, uh, last time I spoke about privatisation, Metro actually tried to sack me. Um, I did a podcast with Tom Ballard a few years ago where I kind of went through some of the problems of privatisation and they then suspended me oh, no. um, for a couple of weeks. And, you know, we, like, we, we fought back, we argued, defended. Um, what we did, and they eventually backed down and I was reinstated. Um, I can talk about it more freely now because I've just recently left working for Metro. Oh. Um, but, yeah, like the, the thing about privatisation was it was always promised that it was going to be a way of saving money, improving services, and all of this has turned out to be totally untrue. Mm. The government subsidises these private companies far more than uh, they subsidised it when it was public. So it's 50% increase uh, since, uh, in terms of government spending since it went private. Um, all the talk of, you know, transferring the risk to the private sector is utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like no one else has that level of a security net. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's this real dodgy kind of private-public partnership where there's still shit tons of public money going into it. Um, but it's all, you know, it's then these private companies who aren't taking risks really um, get all the benefits of that. It's very evident in the in this time of the pandemic and the lockdown in the fact that the businesses were like, oh, well, this is very bad for us and oh, we, we're not going to do the cleaning. And the government goes, okay, yeah, no problem, we'll pay for it. So that's not really how the private market is meant to work. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just totally hypocritical yeah. um, and it's just like it's this, phenomenal rort that you think already they receive, you know, huge amounts of government subsidies and then they get additional money 
um, when, you know, the, the whole point is that, oh, well, you know, in the private sector, what the reason that bosses are meant to make all this money is because things change and, you know, there's risks you take, except they never have to front the cost of those risks. Mm, mm. That gets covered for them. I mean, it's not just like in the context of a pandemic. The government gives them extra money if they run the services properly. Like if they run trains on time, they get a bonus. How many workers get a bonus for just doing the bare minimum necessities of their jobs? Mm. Yeah, right. Um, which, of course, like led um, to station skipping. There was a whole period where Metro were just like skipping stations. So like, okay, the trains were on time, so they got the money but no one actually got to go where they needed to get to. Yeah. <laughs> like, which is, you know, that makes sense. If, if you privatise it, if it's about profit, then the aim is going to be to make maximum amount of money, not to provide the best possible service. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I can imagine that, you know, no matter how like long your list of KPIs or whatever, there's always going to be a loophole that people are going to take just to make the profit. Like, because they're their responsibility isn't the same as the government's. Yeah, and, and much less scrutiny, harder to kind of work it out. And they've got, you know, very talented people on big, big money who, are, who exist to, to create those loopholes. And also they, they negotiate the contracts. They negotiate the loopholes into it. Uh, the franchise ag- agreements that the government gives them allow them to put, yeah, a lot of, mm. a lot of those loopholes in in the first place. One of the interesting things that you mentioned um, when we were corresponding before the show was that part of the problem of privatisation has been actually a decrease in the linkability of services between different public transport um, providers like buses and trams and, and, and rail. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, it's everyone's, like, pet peeve. Like, mm. you know, constantly you'd be, like, you know, doing customer service at Flinders Street and people would kind of run desperately, mm. you know, down those escalators and you'd be like, oh, my God, don't run. You're going <laughs> to hurt yourself, um, you know, to miss a train. And they're like, how could I have possibly met that? You know, my connecting service got here at X time. Mm. It's like, yeah, well, they're not really connecting services. Um, and so there's now lots of talk and the government is putting more money in and they are trying to link the services up a bit more to, to make them match. But privatisation is the reason that they didn't match in the first place, that it was one public transport system and it was quite integrated. Um, And then when they privatised things um, in 1999, they started like separating all of these different, creating all of these different separate companies, including at one point multiple uh, metropolitan rail companies, which Mm -hmm. was an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, But so then, you know, as is the nature of capitalism, they are in competition with one another. So they deliberately delinked their services. So the trams in particular were advertising special deals to encourage people to get on the trams, encouraging people to drive and catch trams rather than, you know, give them special stuff like cheaper parking rather than get people using trains and trams. And then they made it at some locations, they made it deliberately difficult. So they changed the, the, the tram stops at Melbourne Central had a different name back then, hmm. but that actually made interchange times more complicated and more difficult uh, for people, you know, travelling you know, between the, the trams and the trains. Wow. So, yeah, wow. now they have to undo all of that work, that, like, problem that they created. Oh, no, yeah. I can imagine um, because 
I, I expect that you know the future of of transport will be will be changed due to coronavirus, and that as the government renews its contracts with various different private companies, um, they'll have to figure out how to incorporate more of those changes into the contracts. But it all just seems so much more complicated than if there was more of a like linked up system that you could apply overall regulations to. Yeah. Yeah, and even at the, the last time that the contracts for both Yarra and Metro were up for renewal, union activists ran campaigns uh, to tell the Labor government not to renew the contracts. Like they had an opportunity then to to take them back into public hands. Like right, that yeah. was perfectly an option that was totally open to them, that had mass popular support. Like no one likes <laughs> the way public transport is organised at the moment. And was what, you know, workers were saying. We were pointing to the, the way that the company abuses workers, the, the kind of injustices that are met out to workers every day working for these companies, but also that they don't, you know, provide the services that are needed. Mm. Uh, so they had that option. Um, and, yeah, our great Dan. Yeah. It's funny when it... It goes um, beyond, it's, these, these issues are not only issues of convenience or inconvenience, they're also really issues of safety if you're, if you're uh, someone taking a, a, a linking service uh, at, a, at a place that, that you might be vulnerable. Um, it's, you know, bad lighting. We've done a special before on City Limits about transport f- uh, experiences for women in cities, which are very different often than experiences from uh, men and white men. So, you know, there are all kinds of groups of people who are particularly vulnerable to these uh, inadequacies in this in this system. So it's another example of profit um, really being put ahead of not only people's convenience, but people's safety. Absolutely. And there's lots of really, um, vu- like there are lots of vulnerable people who use yeah. the services, particularly yep. um, our passengers with a disability. Yeah. And like making things, you know, like, creating all those additional barriers to the linking, mm-hmm. like all of that has a disproportionate impact um, on those people. We know that when they removed guards, like, you know, mm. disability activists were saying, do not re- remove this service, this is crucial. Mm. Uh, but they did. And now, you know, of course, we know in New South Wales, they're going through a similar process um, and there's pressure to do the same thing there. We actually had a union meeting um, with some disability um, activists who came and talked about you know, they they said that, that there'd be horrendous accidents, and there have been. There have been cases of people slipping between, mm. uh, people with disabilities slipping between the train mm. um, and the platform, which has caused further disabilities. Um, mm. So, you know, like it's just, and they knew all this. Like everyone warned them that this was going to happen mm. um, and they just didn't care. Yeah, we'll actually be joined soon by a representative from the... Uh, the Disability Resource Centre, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, great. Talking about yeah. there's, there's been a new report that's um, come out. It was on, I think it was, not sure if it was on um, accessibility of the whole PT network in Victoria or just trams, but they did find that um, the tram network was only 15% accessible. Um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> But, oh, it's just unbelievable. So, yeah, it would be really interesting to talk to Ali from the Disability Resources Centre next week about that. One of the other vulnerabilities, Kath, that, that you uh, that it might ha- have a comment on is, is financial vulnerability and uh, the increase in fares. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, after all the promises about you know things were going to be cheaper, mm. um, the we we know that the cost of public transport just goes up and up and up. Um, that it outs you know it's, it's going faster than um, inflation, and really, people have to pay for it twice because we all pay our taxes in one way or another, uh, which you know goes into the public transport, and then we also have to pay. Uh, for for tickets, like it's a total rip off, um, and it just is an absolutely unnecessary cost, especially when the services aren't all that great to begin with, and then the huge amount of money that they pour into enforcement. Um, and you know, there's been some important adjustments, but really, that there is just an army of um, authorised officers and you know, PSOs who are meant to play a different role but it sort of reinforces this kind of punitive way of treating people who take public transport that just harass harass poor people. It's the whole job. It's the, and, like, these are people who could be much better used. Like, we could have much more customer service in the railways. Mm. There's, and, you know, huge amounts of jobs that, that would actually, you know, create some value to society. Instead, there's all of this money spent on harassing people um, because, yeah, people still, you need to get somewhere. If you're trying to get a job, you're trying to pull yourself out of poverty in mm. some way, then you need to have a way of getting there. Mm. Um, yeah. So it doesn't stop people using the services. Or if it does, that's even further to to the detriment. So personally, mm. um, and this certainly isn't a, a position that's necessarily um, argued by the union, but I think public transport should be free. It should be a genuinely public service and everyone should have equal access to it. Yeah. Mm. What did you think? Um, there was, I, I'm not sure if it, it is going to go ahead, but there was a suggested idea for, um, or like a plan to adapt the pricing of public transport, making trains more expensive than trams and buses to try and convince people to take more trams and buses instead of trains. Uh, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, what a load of nonsense. Like, <laughs> the the idea is, oh, people aren't taking trams and buses, so let's make them cheaper. And, or, no, not even make it cheaper, just make something else more expensive, <laughs> uh, which obviously just totally disadvantages people who don't have access um, to trams and buses. And we know particularly for people living further out that that's the case. So some of the most impoverished areas only have access to a train. Mm. If you want more people on trams and buses, make those services better then people will use them, extend them, um, you know, so that, that, that they go further, make them link up with the other services, bring them back into public hands so that you can do that more easily. Um, you know, if you want people on these services, then make the services better. Don't penalise people who have to catch one or other form of public transport. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Kath, one of the other issues that in terms of... Um, the coronavirus, the impact on that on, on, on workers within the transport industry is um, pandemic leave. So we've seen this as an issue in a lot of areas and the union's been active in, in this area. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, as I said, a, a lot of the at least direct hire workers uh, in public transport um, do have access to annual leave and sick leave, which we know a lot of casual workers didn't even have access to those things uh, in the face of the pandemic. Uh, but again, like 
I don't think that workers, like these are entitlements, sick leave and annual leave, these are entitlements that workers have won through generations um, of workplace and union struggle uh, and we shouldn't lose them uh, or have, have to have them taken up uh, by a pandemic. This is a new uh, situation and there should be leave that specifically caters for that. It also means, of course, for staff who um, have used a lot of sick leave because either they're chronically ill or they have someone at home that they care for who's chronically ill, that those people who were the most vulnerable to COVID mm. were the least likely to have access to leave. Um, so that was a big, a big concern um, that, that we did raise and push through the union. Um, you know, there's always problems with negotiating things rather than um, taking you know, direct action. Obviously, we know there's a lot of laws that make it harder for workers uh, to go that route. But I think what what you end up with when you negotiate is often less than ideal. So we have a policy. Um, we did get a policy put in, which is better than some places, uh, but that's not saying a lot. And so this policy is just has all sorts of loopholes in it that directs people to take their sick leave first and to take you can only access it if you haven't got a certain amount of annual leave and even then you have to be in a certain vulnerable category like there's just loopholes upon loopholes that made it particularly difficult to access particularly the the testing leave um and i and so even once we had the policy in um the managers would do everything they could to deny people that policy so as a as a delegate mm. i was advocating for people um and yeah, even people who met their rigid, ridiculous criteria. Obviously, I advocated for people who didn't meet their criteria <laughs> and occasionally won it, so that was nice. Mm. But, you know, I had one worker who himself was over the age of 60, himself quite unwell, and looked after his wife who had Parkinson's. So pretty tough situation in that family, a family with not a whole lot of income coming in. Um, and it was absolutely necessary that he take time off to get tested, to isolate for the sake of everyone who uses public transport for his workmates, for himself. Um, and he was off for quite a few days because he, you know, he's meant to stay off as, as long as you're symptomatic. And it was, you know, earlier on when the testing was taking quite a long time to come back and they tried to deny his right um, to, uh, to the pandemic leave. Eventually we got it, but there was a huge amount of back and forward and it's just like, don't be such misers with it. Like, just give people the leave. Like, mm. that's an option that they have. Just do it, mm. um, you know, whether the people meet your specific criteria or not. Um, and it was, you know, really not that much skin off their nose. It wasn't like they were at that time because, uh, you know, things were quite quiet. For the most part, when we were taking time off, they weren't replacing people. So it mm. really wasn't costing them that much. It was an extremely punitive uh, way of dealing with things, which I thought was just certainly from Metro, and I've heard similar things from, you know, uh, comrades in other uh, transport industries, that it was just a very aggressive, punitive approach to the whole thing. Hide the sanitizers, you know, ration the, the face masks, make it difficult for people to take leave. Like, mm. it was... It was like, I think there was a real fear that if they kind of gave an inch, we'd take a mile, which is on one level, sure. Um, <laughs> that, that should be the aim of good activists to get as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, it was, yeah, it was quite phenomenal. 
Yeah, it sort of uh, it very much highlights the difference between the way things were kind of talked about and the reality on the ground for a lot of workers. And mm. uh, I can definitely understand the concern because it does highlight a lot of the deep flaws of capitalism in in the sense that ultimately the profit is more important than people's lives, which totally. is, is pretty horrific to see in action as we have. Yeah. Um, there were... Ca- uh, we're coming to the, close to the top of the show. Uh, if there's anything else that you wanted to add, Kath, or if Zeb has any questions, we've got about five minutes left. Um, well, I guess I would just like to, um, I guess, congratulate all of the workers in transport and in all of the other industries who have taken steps to stand up uh, to bosses. Like, it, it is such an important fight, obviously, for, for workers themselves, but it's a broader fight to protect public health. And public health has almost always been something that workers and unionists have fought for, whether it's health workers or, you know, other workers. It's, you know, you don't get anything without a fight, really. So, yeah, I really want to congratulate those workers and offer my solidarity to people who are still struggling. Uh, And we know that there's going to be a whole lot. Um, of struggle that's going to continue. It's good that we seem to be getting clear of the virus, but we know now that the economic crisis is, you know, going to come and uh, be be quite bad. So Mm. there'll be more need for resistance, no doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kath, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks all of you for having me. Yeah, no worries. It was so good. It was Really interesting conversation and you just, um, I don't know, explain the problems of privatisation so clearly and eloquently. So, oh <laughs> um, <laughs> And so, yeah, that's what City Limits is all about. It was started, oh, my gosh, like 30 years ago maybe. Um, wow. I haven't been here the whole time. But um, to to counteract against the, the pushes of privatisation that were happening more and more in public housing and public transport and utilities and, and, and various services. So it's really good to, to, to remember that this, this struggle continues and that there, there are ways that we can collectively make a difference. Um, very good to talk to Kath Larkin there from the rail, tram and bus union and um, you're listening to City Limits and you can podcast this show if you're not listening to it live on 855am. You can podcast it in your podcast app or you can Google or put in the link 3cr.org.au slash city limits. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're gonna continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders, this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. 
You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Everybody's got something that sets them on fire 
Listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.